This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I had the distinct honor and pleasure of connecting with Dr. Sonia Jensen, discussing her new book, Women Unleashed. We dove deep into the value of self-discovery, talking about past traumas, the role of breath work, yoga in integrating the parasympathetic or rest and repose side of our central nervous system, the net impact of stress on women's hormones, ways to nourish and support our bodies, the role of curiosity, physical activity and play. We talked a great deal about how our hormonal health starts and the role of how long it takes for us to actually be at full sexual maturity, the role of synthetic hormones and how that can impact our body, the use of contraceptives, grief centering around aging, the role of wisdom years and menopause, how we can reframe our stories and the importance of fasting and our relationship with food. I hope you will love this discussion as much as I did. Well, Dr. Sonia, it's such a pleasure to have you with me this morning. I know it's early on your side of the country, but thank you so much for carving time out of your schedule to connect and talk about your new book. Oh, thank you. Such a pleasure to be here with you this morning. And yes, it's early, but it's it's amazing to be able to actually get back into routine, to be honest. It yes. Yeah, yes, got me going this morning. Many of us probably didn't appreciate enough pre-pandemic. Now there are many little things about life that we really try to savor. And so you know, being an author myself, I always kind of like to start the the conversation saying, what was it about this book that you felt really needed to be shared with the world? Because that's a a wonderful way to kind of start the conversation. I really enjoy the book and certainly will encourage listeners to purchase it. But what was the impetus between this book right now? Yeah, I think the hope is that women really start to fall in love with themselves again. I find there's so much in our life that tells us that we're not enough, or we look at ourselves first thing in the mirror, we're already looking at our imperfections and thinking about our to-do lists and thinking about all the things that we're not good enough in. And what my hope is that through this process of self-discovery in the book, that women start to realize how brilliant they really are and what a miracle we all humans are because that one specific sperm and that one specific ovum came together for you to be here in this moment. So everything is on purpose. So that really is my hope and my desire when I was writing it to help women understand that we're not alone. Often we go through so many processes thinking that it's just mine or this emotion or this feeling is just mine. This challenge is just mine. And when we start to share with some vulnerability that really all of us women have this common thread that weaves through us, that connects us, I think it opens up so many doors for healing. And we start to understand that life really is a process. That's not about this journey that we have to bring to an end all the time and meet this goal and that goal. And goals are amazing and great. I think they're necessary to help our trajectory towards the direction that we want to go in. But I really hope that women take time with this book so that they can self-discover. And I think it's so important. You know, I was taping another podcast yesterday for another guest. And one of the things that we started the conversation, the narrative on was how much pressure women feel to be perfect Mm -hmm. and not just perfect physically, But in their personal lives, in their professional lives, the amount of pressure that we put ourselves under is sometimes unknowingly. And it may be that it takes us until late 30s, early 40s, that all of a sudden you start to really figure this all out, as opposed to when we're younger, there's so much conditioning that we get through our families. And I always say well-meaningly, but on many levels or through peers, and you retrospectively look back and you're like, wow, I almost didn't realize how much influence these individuals had on me. And now I'm in a point now where I can confidently decide where I want to be in time and space and what, you know, mass we want to shed. You know, I always think about Brene Brown's work and yeah. you know, the massive imperfection and 
for many of us feeling a strong sense of pressure. I certainly felt it. Mm-hmm. My parents had expectations of me that were, you know, beyond my wildest imagination. There was always pressure at a very early age to look a certain way, to behave mm-hmm. a certain way, to be the obedient, dutiful daughter, mm-hmm. to not question. Obviously now I always say I'm probably the opposite of that in many ways, because I stand firmly in my power and say, this works for me or this does not. But do you think on many levels that it's the conditioning we start with as children that really begets a lot of the choices that we make, even as young adults, you know, from teenage years into young adulthood, when we're starting Mm -hmm. to kind of break free from our parents, that we start to question things. Do you think that family really is the root of our own perceptions of ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. In the book too, I kind of go through even when we're in the womb, the conditioning actually starts there because we're taking notice of our mom's hormones, her environment, her emotions, and we're really understanding the environment that we're going to be stepping into. And as humans, the thing that we need to do always is to survive and we will do whatever it takes to do that. Fetuses will even change their phenotype. So how they're going to look is going to adjust according to the family that they're going into. So that when they come in, they are already accepted into that tribe. So as we're stepping into this new tribe of ours and this culture and this family, we are then observing our environment. Oh, so how do we respond to this challenge? Or how do we respond when somebody speaks to us in this way? So we're learning, we're like sponges, especially up until the age of seven, everything's going into that subconscious brain. So it's telling us that this is fact, that this is how we behave. This is how we need to look. This is what we need to do in life. This is our purpose. We're even given that often. And we really do identify with that. And once we do, because that's anchoring us into this tribe. So now we're feeling love. We're feeling connected. We're feeling accepted. All the things that we crave as humans. So then we move through those adolescents, really identifying with it and then really defending that identity and really looking in our environment and everything that we look at starts to validate that identity, because that's the lens that we're now carrying through those years. And it really isn't like you said, until we start looking at our parents in kind of a different way. And I've noticed this with my oldest now, now that he's 10, he's questioning more before something that I would say, he would just take it. And now he's like, well, I don't actually agree with that. And I'm so proud of him for doing that. I'm really trying to create a space for him to be able to question, I can't say it's easy all the time, because sometimes as a mom, you're just just listen, (laughs) you know, this is how it is. And I have to stop myself because that's my own conditioning. And that's my thought. And that's my lens. So I'm constantly reassessing when I'm communicating with them, like, hey, yeah, you're right, you can have an opinion, you can have a totally different lens than I do. But I don't think our generation actually received that space. Many of us didn't because the generation before didn't. So now not only are we carrying the conditioning of our world right now, but also the lineage from before, like seven or even 14 generations they've counted back. So we're carrying all of those beliefs. And that's what's anchoring our identity is anchoring us to our own core. And if we start to unravel that, that creates chaos in our world. It creates grief. It creates all this uncertainty and we humans don't do well with those things until we understand that all of that hasn't been serving me. And in order for me to step into the power that you were speaking into, I need to unravel it, release it, and accept the components of it that do feel right for me. So that's kind of the journey I'm really hoping all women, all humans really go on because I do feel like that is what's going to create deep connection within ourselves and with each other. Well, this discussion is so incredibly timely. I have a cousin who I adore and think of as a sister. I didn't grow up with a sister. And she and I were texting this morning and voice texting, and we're very, very close. And both of us have survived some pretty traumatic childhoods. And the one thing that I have confidently found is that the reason why I turned out very differently than I could have was a strong compass of the direction I wanted my life to go in. But I also had the love of extended family members and always had a very, very tight group of girlfriends. In fact, Mm. most of my girlfriends that I'm closest to are the friends I've been friends with for 30 or 40 years. And so I think when we're talking about a lot of the things we experience as children and trying to shift the focus or 
shift uh, recreating or not recreating the environment we grew up in. For me, I had an alcoholic parent and parents who did a lot of yelling and screaming. And so for me, I grew up being a quiet child because if I was quiet and I was perfect and I got good grades, no one bothered me. And so, you know, that carried into my young adulthood with the, again, people pleasing mentality, which then carried into a job where I was very well liked because I was a people pleaser. So I kind of feel like it took quite a bit of my lifetime to figure out that was no longer serving me and Mm -hmm. ensuring that my boys are growing up in an environment. My husband and I are, are very I would say we're largely introverted. We're social, but introverted. We like a very quiet home. And so there's not a lot of yelling and screaming. And so sometimes now that my children are teenagers, I can speak more openly about the environment I grew up in as a child and how they're growing up very differently and how important it is for them to understand, you know, what happens in our bodies when we're exposed to chronic stress Mm -hmm. and how I'm ensuring that we are breaking those generational traumas. And you do talk about trauma And Mm -hmm. you do talk about generational trauma and that's a lot of what you're alluding to in that conversation. And so I think it's really important for listeners because this is a concept for me that only really became apparent in the last three years. So 2019, I spent 13 Mm -hmm. days in the hospital, almost died. And that really shifted a lot of things in my life, you know, coming out of the hospital, Mm -hmm. realizing I was no longer playing it safe. I was definitely going to push boundaries. I was going to live a little differently in a good way and very positive ways. So let's start the discussion really talking about like, what does trauma do? Because I think Mm. in my brain as a nurse practitioner, when I thought about trauma, trauma was a rape, trauma was Mm. murder, trauma was something grandiose and big. Mm. And what I've come to find is we can experience micro traumas throughout our lifetime that can have a really profound impact on us as individuals but we just don't recognize it as such. Mm -hmm. If I talk to my clinical psychologist friends, they laugh about this. Like, how did you not know? So, well, Mm -hmm. I wasn't trained that way. As a traditional allopathic Western medicine trained provider, traumas were big things like the trauma in the ER or the trauma that, you know, went on when someone experienced some type of catastrophic event. And yet these events, these micro traumas throughout our lifetime can really influence and imprint us in Mm -hmm. really profound ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. Those big T traumas that we were talking about, they're also a bit more accepted in a sense too. So when somebody is moving through a process and talking about their story, and if they don't identify with a big T trauma, you know, we ourselves and think, oh, well, maybe my story isn't worth voicing because somebody else has had such a bigger trauma than I have. And we also then diminish our own experience with those micro traumas and those micro moments that I call. And those can be so simple with like, even when as parents, I've noticed myself and my responses to my children When, for example, if my youngest is doing a drawing and I'm busy with work, you know, with now our work is on our phones often. And if I'm doing something, if I don't immediately step into that mom space where he's trying to show a drawing and he's really excited about it, that in itself is creating this dialogue in his brain that, oh, that is more important than me. Even though my intention is, well, no, you are so important. And this work that I'm doing is all for you. But as a child, when you look through their vision and their lens, they don't see or understand that. All they want is connection. That's the only thing that they understand. So those micro moments that happen throughout our lifetime do accumulate into these bigger beliefs about ourselves, that I'm not important, I'm not significant, I'm better seen than heard. All these different things that we start to really relate to or identify with are because of those micro traumas that have started at a very young age and from even when we were infants, because that's when we're reading people's energy. That's when we're reading our caregivers' expressions. Oh, when I cry my mom looks like this. When I'm happy, she looks like this. So I better be happy in order for her to be happy. So again, the home is safe, the home is steady and all the things that we were just talking about. So I do think that these micro ones have just as much as an impact as the bigger traumas that we experience. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep 
challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armra Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armra's colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced. And it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. I think it's important for people, whether they're working with a therapist, whether they're doing Reiki or energy work or coach, that mm. the acknowledgement that your own experiences are exactly what they are. They are significant. Mm. Each one of us might have a very different background, but each one of us have experienced traumas to some degree. I certainly have mm. had girlfriends that have experienced what I would consider to be a macro trauma, something mm. profound. And I did diminish a lot of things that I experienced as a child and young adult, because I would compare, I would say, well, I didn't go through that. So this can't possibly be as bad, but yet the imprinting on our bodies, you know, you talk about the book, the body keeps score. Mm -hmm. And it was a book that I actually had, it had been recommended to me. I had not yet purchased it. I then took it as divine inspiration that I am meant to read this book, Mm -hmm. but it's the recognition that It doesn't have to be something that happens to you on a physical level to not have then have a profound impact on you 
whether it's on a mental and spiritual level. And so it's the recognition of how important and how our body processes that information. And I know on many levels, a lot of what you talk about in the book is the impact of micro traumas and stress Mm -hmm. on us as women. And so let's talk a little bit about what happens in the body when we're under stress and and it could be acute Mm -hmm. stress. It could be chronic stress as we're, you know, heading into another year of the never ending pandemic and all out from that. I'm sure for many of us, it's now become chronic stress, you know, the Mm. talking about kids being home from school, et cetera, additional stress on parents, but let's unpack what stress does to a woman's body. Because the one thing that I think many women don't recognize whether or not they're at a point in their lives where they want children or do not, that our bodies are designed to be fertile. They're designed Mm -hmm. to procreate. They're designed to transform life. And so on many, many levels, our perception of stress has such a profound impact on our bodies Mm -hmm. and finding balance in terms of how our body, you know, responds to these stressors, whether they're day-to-day major or minor stressors. Yeah, absolutely. So the way our physiology is built, just like you said, our reproductive system really is the one that helps us thrive because it is all about creation and it's about evolution. And when we are in a state of survival, which most of us absolutely sit in, we are in that fight, flight, freeze, or please. And when we're there, there's a certain set of hormones that are going to be influenced rather than when we are in that state of parasympathetic and really being rather than doing. So when we're in that survival mode, simply put, we're increasing our stress hormones like cortisol. If cortisol rises, progesterone goes down and progesterone really is that hormone. It's like that warm hug that helps to regulate everything in our system. It helps to activate receptors in our brain for GABA, which is the neurotransmitter that helps us feel at ease and calm. So it has a huge influence on how we're receiving information because when you're receiving information from that space, you're going to pause and assess before you respond. When you're receiving information in that fight or flight state, you're going to react. So the more we do that, the more we influence our body and our physiology to tell it that this is a state I need to be in in order to survive and make it through my day. And that could be simply putting our kids' lunches together, getting them to school, taking them to soccer, maybe having an argument with our partner. It's those daily things that we're doing that are going to perpetuate that cycle or the one where we thrive. So that's where those pause moments that I bring into the book come in of like being able to recognize when we're in one state over the other so we can shift because stress isn't bad. It's there for a reason, but we're only supposed to be in that for 2% of the time. And we should be able to shift out of it into that parasympathetic and really work on that vagal nerve, which will then tell the rest of the body that it's okay. I'm not in danger. And you'll read once you read or the body keeps score. There's a study that I mentioned in my book that they did in the 90s, where this one particular study really stood out for me just because it was a mom. And she had gotten to a car accident with her son who had passed away. And then she also lost the child that she had in her belly. And 10 years later is when they do this study and she relays what happens to her. And then as she's hooked up to all these things to measure her physiology and how it's responding to this stress, and they're relaying it back to her through audio, her visual cortex got activated more than anything else, as if she was in that moment again. So when we look at our everyday moments and when we're under stress or we smell something or there's a trigger with a song or a sound or a shirt that we're wearing. It could be anything. Often we're not responding to the moment we're in right there. We're often responding to something that happened in the past that created that imprint in our brain to tell our amygdala to be activated, to get information from our limbic system, to look at our hippocampus that has all our memory, to then tell the hypothalamus and pituitary gland that, hey, these are the hormones that I need. So it's that circuit that we need to work on breaking in order to create a new pattern to say like, hey, that was stressful. That was awful. I am still carrying grief, but being able to hover over that rather than getting wrapped up in it, I do feel like that is the key to bring us now back into that parasympathetic reproductive state because the body's not going to want to create life if it has to just survive life. Well, and I think it's an important distinction and there's no irony lost in the fact that over the past two years, I think many, many people have lived in this chronic state of stress. And much to your point, as you eloquently talked about, 
the amygdala will override the prefrontal cortex. And then all of a sudden you're no longer having the ability to make executive functioning decisions. And think about it when you're really, really stressed and you can't find your keys or you can't remember a number, or you just can't think clearly. And that's a byproduct of these physiologic changes that happen in the body. And I would imagine for you, when you're working with your patients, you probably have some strategies that you like to utilize, or you recommend to get people you know, back into the parasympathetic, you know, I'm, I'm in the midst of reading for the second time, the book breath by James Nestor. Have you read it before? I haven't. Well, I'm completely nerding out on the science, yeah. but really <laughs> I always say like, I have to preface and say like, I'm completely nerding out. I made my husband use mouth tape last night because he occasionally yep. snores. And I, I was talking to him about what happens physiologically in the body when, when you're breathing through your nose, nose not breathing through your mouth. And so he had some interesting things that will, depending on which side of your nostril Mm -hmm. you suppress, you can activate the parasympathetic Mm -hmm. or the sympathetic. And I was like, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. And so it's completely blown my mind, but for the benefit of listeners who are trying to think of ways that they can integrate into their daily life, they can get them out of that fight or flight, get them back into that rest and repose side of their brain. What are some of the strategies you like best for women in particular? Because Mm -hmm. a lot of, and what I love about your work is it's really very focused on women and it gets very Mm -hmm. granular. But I think in this, these circumstances that we're living in right now, everyone would benefit from proactively Mm -hmm. utilizing every day, finding strategies to support their brain, support their bodies and support their hormones so that they are really optimized. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I love that you brought breath up because I'm also a yoga teacher. So breath is a huge part of my own practice. And that right and left nostril, you were talking about the pingula and the ingula, it's activating different parts of our brain. So that is that brilliance that I was speaking to in the beginning, when we really start to unpack what the body already has within it, and all we have to do is fuel it with the right tools and just reactivate, not to activate, but reactivate. It's always been there. If you watch a child breathing, you know, as they're sleeping, a few, when they're a few months old, you see their belly rising. How are we breathing? Usually from up here, from our chest, because we're always hyperventilating instead of actually <laughs> taking the, a fresh breath in. And so it's those simple things that make more of a profound effect than the big things that we think we have to do and that we have to do maybe on a New Year's resolution or spring cleanse or these things that also work. And it's the everyday things that are going to actually make a huge difference in how we feel about ourselves and then how we feel about life. So I do always, my first step with anyone is to bring awareness to that fact that how we receive our environment, our beliefs, our identity, the mass, the roles, everything is impacting your biology. And then that biology with the changes in your hormones is impacting your personality And now that personality is changing the decisions that you're making every single day. So the actions that you're taking. So then how do we reverse engineer that? So maybe we start with the actions, right? We start with the physiology. So then we have energy to unpack some of that energetic and that mental burden that we've been carrying. So then we look at daily habits. So what are we doing first thing in the morning? So I love Mel Robbins. I don't know if you've heard of her and her, yeah, and her new book, The High Five, even incorporated that. I've gotten women to do that first thing in the morning because I think that is brilliant and so simple. And it really is that thought process in the morning. So what I usually plant a seed with is how do you want to wake up? So I ask questions. How would you like to wake up? So the woman will tell me, okay, I want to wake up with joy. Great. That's your word. And that's what's going to be taped next to your bedside. So that's the first thing that you see when you wake up. So now you take the steps into your next few minutes. So what's the next thing we're going to do? We're going to create a routine that's going to help serve you and your life. Maybe that's not an hour of working out and journaling and doing all the things because you have four kids that you need to get ready for school. So maybe it's three minutes while you go brush your teeth. And you have a mantra that's playing in the background. You have something written in your mirror. You're doing calf raises while you're brushing your teeth. You're doing something to anchor yourself back into your body after being in that dream state. So now you've already told yourself, I am worth it, that I can carve out time for myself. And then maybe after that, it's a cup of tea. So these like simple things that we can seed so that the brain starts to recognize that like, okay, we can be in a calm state. And then the other thing I like to plant in people's minds is that when you're in a moment, when a moment is happening to pause, to give yourself time to breathe, take one, two, three breaths, 
and then you can respond. But during that pause, you're going to ask yourself a question. Who does this belong to? What is this actually about? Is this mine to carry? Is this worth reacting to? So when we start doing those things, it starts to increase that space, that pause space between the stimulus and the response. So then we'll respond in a way that's not going to evoke that amygdala and the hippocampus and all those things. But now it's like, okay, this is how I need to respond to this situation. It's not going to be perfect every time, but what's going to happen is we're going to start to really observe ourselves in those moments more and more so that next time we can pause a little bit further. And then with the daily habits, the other question I like to see it is, is this going to nourish me? So this could be when we're reaching for some food, when we're trying to eat at 7 a.m. And I know both of you are on the same page when it comes to eating restricted windows and all of that. So when we're doing these things, or maybe it's that late night eating, right? Asking yourself, is this going to nourish me? And maybe in that moment, it's nourishing your soul. And that's what's needed. And that's okay. Guilt, shame, gone. Right. But maybe that question will bring insight into the fact that, no, I actually just need comfort. I'm actually just tired. Maybe I just need to go to bed. Maybe I need to read a good book. Maybe I need to cuddle with my partner. It'll just kind of bring curiosity into your day. And the more curious you are about yourself, the easier it becomes to change these habits, which then start to then change the physiology, because now you're going to seek out help. You're going to seek out the coaches. You're going to seek out individuals that are going to be in your team to, you know, share with you, okay, this is the food that you need. These are the herbs that you need. These are the things that you need to support your physiology. Now there's space to unpack. Now there's room to look at where did this all begin? Why did this start? How did I get here? So then we start doing that energetic and that emotional work. I think it's really important for people to understand what you're really emphasizing are small changes. Mm -hmm. I think there's this push for things to be grandiose that you have to spend hours doing something to, you know, drive benefits from it. And I do think the small things, you know, even reflecting on a word first thing in the morning, you know, doing some type of, you know, reflective activity as you're brushing your teeth. The small things are the big things. The older I become, the more I acknowledge and recognize how important and significant these things are. And I'd love that you're doing this work, particularly with women and understanding this interrelationship between, as you refer to as this role of curiosity and how that in and of itself can help change your physiology. I think that's really, really key. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that a lot of your focus in your work is, is on women and because I've had this conversation recently so frequently, I think it's particularly relevant when we're looking at women, when we're talking about whether it's women who are still at peak fertility, maybe they're at perimenopause, menopause, the kind of standard medical doctrine is really on controlling our hormones. Mm -hmm. You know, it's an emphasis on synthetic hormone utilization or devices to control symptoms without really thinking beyond what these symptoms are, are really identifying for us. Yeah. I found it particularly interesting that you spent time in the book talking about the role of synthetic hormones, not just the ones that we may take for contraception, but our exposure to synthetic hormones that influence our hormones in very negative ways. So let's first mm -hmm. really touch on oral contraceptives, because I think mm -hmm. most women listening, myself included, I was on oral contraceptives for a long period of time, never fully recognizing how much better I felt when I was no longer taking them, realizing I really didn't have bad PMS. It was a byproduct of the synthetic hormones I was taking. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about what happens in our bodies when we take mm -hmm. these synthetic hormones, whether it's for contraception or it's to you know lessen the severity of bleeding or because someone has, for example, PCOS, yeah. What are some of the things that happen in the body? Because I think the more women understand this, it might give them a bit of pause about yeah. determining whether or not this is an appropriate avenue to take. And there's no judgment because again, for many years I was on oral contraceptives because that was just my Western medicine mindset, controlling a mm -hmm. symptom, making it better. But let's unpack that because I think in particular, there are a lot of women listening that are at different stages of their lives that would be particularly interested in hearing more about this. Yeah, for sure. I think the first thing to also understand is that the moment a woman has her first period, it takes up to 12 years for the brain to actually regulate her ovulation. 
So now if we come in at age 14 or 15 and we start taking contraceptives, it's changing that communication. That's essentially what it's doing is changing communication between your brain and the rest of your body, like your ovaries and your adrenals and all the reproductive organs. So when we change communication, just like in any relationship, when communication isn't working, then there's going to be consequences. So I think what needs to happen is women need to understand the consequences so then they can make the decision that's suitable for them. So in my book, I mentioned another book called Your Brain on Birth Control by Dr. Sarah Hill, brilliant book that every woman needs to read. She really goes over each type of birth control and what it's doing and studies. And as we know, um, there are not a lot of studies done on women, unfortunately, when it comes to our health. So she does unpack that. And she also unpacks some of the very specifics when it comes to birth control and understanding what it's doing. So often what birth control is doing is stopping ovulation. When you stop LH, when you stop ovulation, you're stopping your hormones like progesterone. What you're doing is you're stopping the rhythm that is connecting you not only to yourself, but also to the earth, to the moon, to all of us women. It's basically disconnecting you. And in that disconnect, what happens often is women kind of go into state of numbness. So now we're making life decisions from that space. So they did do a study where there's certain parts of our brain that will get activated when we see a picture of our partner or somebody that we're attracted to. And in this simple study that they did, they saw the women that were on birth control that actually didn't change. And they were also choosing different types of men. They were choosing men that had more feminine yin qualities than men that had more yang qualities. So if you think about the years that we do birth control, I I was also on birth control for five years. And I talk about that in the book and how I went through a divorce after I got off of birth control. And not that something drastic like that's going to happen for everybody, but it really does show us how quickly our life and our perception and our lens can change with this little pill. And what also happens is it creates this different relationship with our reproductive system. So for so long in our psyche, the whole focus is not to get pregnant. I can't get pregnant. I don't want to get pregnant if that's the goal with your birth control. And then all of a sudden you find a partner and you want to start a family. Now you're trying to switch that dialogue and that becomes a challenge. So it's creating a shift in that relationship. The other thing that we know birth control does, it depletes us of our minerals like magnesium, B vitamins, zinc, all the little cofactors that are working really hard for us every single day. It's creating dysbiosis. So more women are going to have yeast infections. So the unfortunate thing is it's the only thing in the allopathic doctor's toolkit when it comes to your hormones. So if you show up with PCOS, which is a whole other podcast, it's very overdiagnosed. And if that's what's going on, there's irregular periods. Okay. Let's regulate in quotation marks, your period, basically by stopping it, you're not having a real bleed at the end of the month. You're having a letdown bleed. Your lining is then not really getting that chance to detoxify. And like, how amazing is it that every month we get to detox physically, emotionally, mentally, So when we start to change that relationship and that understanding, then women can actually look at their life because the other side of birth control, it may give you more motivation. Maybe you're in university and your whole goal is to be that CEO and that's what your dream is and that's what you want to do. And maybe this is getting in the way and maybe that's the thing that's going to help give you that tool to thrive in that area, but know what that's going to do right? Know what that's, what impact that's going to have on your body. So you can support yourself during that time and afterwards too. So there isn't this expectation that I'll just get off my birth control and I get pregnant in a couple of months. So I think just awareness that there is like real biochemical physiological changes that these little pills and injections and IUDs also have on the body, then you can choose which one is going to be most suited for you. I think it's, it really speaks to the concept of informed consent. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. I want to believe wholeheartedly that many of these, these synthetic hormones are designed to help us. But mm-hmm. I think for many of us, if we had known at young ages, what we are giving up in order to have the, not whether it's regulating your hormones or regulating your hormones, air quotes, Mm-hmm. you know, helping with contraception, et cetera, there's no judgment. And, and obviously, as I've disclosed, yeah. I was on oral contraceptives for a long time, but I think it's also important for us to understand that 
there isn't this in truly informed consent when we start these medications mm-hmm. and yet they can have a profound long-term effect. I'll give you an example. My best friend from high school called me the other day and she said, I don't know if I'm getting close to menopause. And so I asked her, I said, are you taking any medications? That woman has been on oral contraceptives forever. Mm-hmm. And her physician's discussion with her was, we'll just keep you on these because why bother getting a period? And so she's kind of gotten into that, that mindset of, you know, I have a very demanding job. It just makes things easier not to have a period. I don't have to worry about, you know, this or that. And I actually said to her, I was like, we wouldn't actually know you'd have to go off and then you'd have to do blood testing. And and I said, really, I think at this point, you're probably pretty close. You know, the average age of menopause in the United States is 51, Mm -hmm. you know, and you're close to that, you're probably closer in many instances, because I I seem to see more and more women that are thinner that are going through earlier than their obese, Mm -hmm. overweight peers. And so she had said to me, no one's ever told me that before. Mm. I've never had that conversation. And she said, how many years have I been on the pill? And she said, this is a long time. And so I I would imagine there are many people listening who didn't have that degree of informed consent, weren't really made aware Again, I want to believe it's well-meaning healthcare professionals. They're mm-hmm. trying to find a, a solution to a problem. Yeah. Heavy periods, irregular periods, contraception, et cetera. So how do we honor our bodies? How do we mm-hmm. stay connected to our bodies? Because I think that in many ways that has not been part of the social construct, unless you are living in an environment where perhaps your mom was particularly attuned to this. Mine was not. In fact, mm-hmm. I, I recall I probably had one conversation about menstruation, maybe one conversation about contraception. And that was it. Beyond that, there are no conversations about these things in my household. So I would imagine the average person didn't have that experience, but what are some of the things that you talk to your patients about Mm -hmm. when they're trying to make decisions about contraception? Because that's actually a question that came up several times when Mm -hmm. I mentioned to my monthly groups that we were connecting was what are some of the options you like for women who still or whether they're done having children, they're not ready to have children yet. What are some of the contraceptive options that you personally will suggest Mm -hmm. to your patients? Yeah. So I think the key is to understand what the goal is first and what stage in life you're at and what you feel comfortable with. So for me, the best rhythm is, or the best method is the rhythm method. And I understand it's not foolproof and you want to be in a committed relationship and you want to really have an understanding of your body and how it works. So if you have an understanding of how your cycle works, so that education, I feel like has to begin from day one. So for example, one of my best friends, her daughter just had her first period. She's nine years old, really young. And I'm like, okay, so what are we going to do with this? Many cultures have ceremonies Mm -hmm. and have this day where you honor her. So I made sure that I spent time with her and telling her how powerful she is now and how amazing this gift is that her body is giving her just to plant that seed, whether she believes that for the rest of her life or not, and things change for her as the years go by, but she's always going to remember that initial time where somebody told her that she's powerful because of this. And so I think the education first needs to start there and understanding how the hormones are working throughout the month, like how estrogen and testosterone are more dominant in the beginning. And then estrogen kind of goes down and progesterone is more dominant at the end. And what those hormones do, I think is important. And then if you know what stage you're in, so for example, if it's some, if it's a young woman, that's just becoming sexually active and she's having questions about contraception and it's purely for contraception. Periods are fine. Everything is okay, but really just wants to make sure she doesn't get pregnant. Then we're going to look at the different options. So often I will go for a combo pill so that it is giving her more, both of those hormones, the estrogen and the progesterone. Cause one thing that a lot of women don't know is that the progesterone only pills actually come from testosterone. So often what happens is it blocks the testosterone receptors and actually lowers or is your libido. So now we're thinking, okay, what's wrong with me? Why don't I have any of those feelings for my partner when I should? So that's something that's important to understand when you're choosing your contraceptive. So if that's that case there, and then I'm going to educate her, well, you're going to take this. You may feel bloated. Your mood may change. These things may happen. Recognize it's the pill, not you. And if it's becoming overwhelming, we need to change what's going on. Cause you won't know until you actually try one. 
And you have to have permission or give yourself permission to have that conversation with your doctor that this doesn't suit me. What's something else that I can do? Because maybe that mini pill or that progesterone only pill will be the best thing for her. We don't know yet. And then you want to step into maybe later in life, maybe you've had children and now you're done. And a lot of women will opt into getting like the IUD, like a copper IUD, because they know they don't want excess hormones. So now we're looking at what is in that copper IUD. There's copper. So we look at our zinc. We want to make sure we're testing our zinc to see, and that's a red blood cell and white blood cell and intracellular and extracellular to make sure that we're not skewing that ratio between zinc and copper, which will then suppress our immune system, our progesterone, and therefore up our stress state. So you want to look at those things. There's also plastic in the copper IUD. So you want to look at that. You want to understand that it's creating inflammation in your uterus and that's how it's working. So knowing those things, again, gives us more of an idea of what's going to be best for us. And then maybe you have a woman in perimenopause. She may actually thrive with the Mirena because it's got that local progesterone, progestin for her. And that is the time in our life where estrogen is a little bit more dominant naturally and progesterone has been coming down. So there's a gap. So often women will feel a little bit better being on the Mirena, but understanding that if your hormone in your body looks like a circle, the Mirena hormone looks like a square. So understanding that it's not the exact thing, that it may bring up more emotion, you may be weepier, you may be more reactive in certain ways. So there are again, going to be consequences, but there are certain ones that you can play with and know that you need to be taking B vitamins, you need to be doing the zinc and you need to be doing the things for your gut so that your microbiome is being supported and your vaginal microbiome is being supported. So that's the way I would speak to a woman to understand first her goal and then lay out what the options are. And then if she can do the rhythm method, then that's the one I'm going to teach her. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients. And it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 
12 month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Well, and I I think it's important to give women options. And I love the kind of allusion to the infrared rhythm, which is this typical 28 to 30 day cycle that Mm -hmm. women that are still cycling, still getting their menstrual cycle will go through. Mm -hmm. And you acknowledge that, yeah, there are many types of cycles in our bodies. There's the circadian rhythm, there's the Sephardian rhythm. There are lots of different cycles, but how critically important it is to us as individuals that we get fully informed in terms of what our options are. I always use the example that when I was in, you know, probably the early stages of perimenopause and I was having a conversation with my GYN at the time. And I said, my periods are really heavy. You know, the joke was I never wanted to have my period start when I was rounding in the hospital because it was Mm -hmm. just, it was a disaster. And so I mentioned this to her. And then ironically, my annual exam was on the first day of my period. And so she did a physical exam and she said, oh my gosh, your your period is so heavy. And I said, I told you that. Mm -hmm. And so we can fix this. We've got oral contraceptives. We have an IUD. If you don't want to do that, we can ablate your uterus. Or if you really don't want to deal with any of this, we can just take your uterus out. And I was like, time out. (laughs) I'm not doing any of the above. And so I really kind of dove down the rabbit hole of what are ways I can support my body naturally because I'm not interested in taking hormones in any capacity. I don't want anything implanted. I don't want surgery if I can avoid it. Mm -hmm. And so I I think in many ways, when women are entering perimenopause, the five to 10 years preceding menopause and then into menopause, let's talk a little bit about the changes that start to happen, Mm -hmm. because I think that there's little to no information. I certainly felt like as a traditionally trained MP, the word perimenopause, I had never heard before ever. No one had talked to me about it. My OB slash GYN had never had a discussion. Oh, by the way, when you get North of 35, you start having this waning progesterone. Mm -hmm. You may not ovulate every month, never had a discussion. And so I feel like it has become my personal passion to make sure that women better understand what's happening physiologically to them as they're aging, because we don't, this narrative about aging, you know, we started off the conversation talking about the pressure women feel no one, everyone focuses on contraception, menstruation, Mm -hmm pregnancy, postpartum, and then women become invisible. And that's a term Mm. that a lot of my patients have started using. They feel invisible and they feel in many ways, no longer acknowledged because Mm -hmm. they're in this state where they're less fertile or they're becoming infertile. And the more women understand about their bodies, Mm. the better choices they can make for themselves. So when you are speaking to your women in middle age, how does that narrative change for you as a clinician? Yeah, it's so important that you brought this up because I do feel that that is the common theme that women do feel very invisible and are often told it's all in your head. And that makes us feel very unheard and almost validate some of the old beliefs and the things that we've been carrying in our backpacks for so long. So the first thing that I help women acknowledge is that there's grief happening right now, too. There's a lot of grief that happens when the body is shifting out of those reproductive years and letting go of that part of our life and more into our wisdom years. And in that transition, it's like for those women that have given birth, when you're in transition, there's a huge challenge. It's painful. You're out of control. All these things are happening. And yet this other being gets birthed out a few minutes later. And that's kind of what's happening in perimenopause. You're in that rocky transition because hormones and everything, what's happening is mirror to you is all that happened in the past. 
So everything, all the decisions that we made, everything is coming to a head in those moments so that you can reflect, you can shift, you can pivot, you can have gratitude and then invite in what you want for the years to come. So I think it's important to recognize how amazing that period can actually be because it's such a beautiful opportunity to heal some of the things that we've been carrying with us so that we can invite in those wisdom years. And unfortunately, our culture here, the elderly are not revered. Aging is not revered. If anything, everything's anti-aging. So there's this whole other pressure that we put on ourselves during perimenopause to still have that body that we had when we were 25. And yet starting age 25, our hormones like progesterone and testosterone, they start to decline. So estrogen is still pretty dominant there, but then depending on how we ate, how we moved, our environment with our cosmetics and all the various things that can disrupt our hormones, our emotional life, our stresses and all the things, all of that is coming with us into those years. So then often what's happening is when we're transitioning around 35 to 40, the body's giving us a few signals. Like maybe there's a little bit of waking around our abdomen that never used to be there, or maybe our skin all of a sudden we have acne that wasn't there before, or maybe we had it when we were in our teens, or maybe now the PMS with like the irritability after we ovulate is present. Like these signals are starting to show up. And then usually at 40, something else shifts because now even our progesterone, like you were saying, it's waning mm -hmm. and we're having anovulatory cycles. So now our libido is shifting for some, it actually spikes for a little while and then it starts to go down. So all these bumpy changes are happening at that time, really to tell you what your story has been. So if you start to acknowledge that story, if you start to heal that story, understand that my body has been whispering things to me. And now it's just speaking a little bit louder because it's time for me to get louder. I remember when I turned 40, I was like, yes, I'm finally in my FU 40s. Finally going to say what I need to say. Right? <laughs> finally going to push those boundaries and say yes. the word no. And so I do feel like it's such a beautiful opportunity for all of that to happen. Unless if we don't become aware of that, I think that's when we get stuck in that cycle. And that's when we're still continuously giving our power away. So somebody telling us, oh, you're done having kids. Let's just take it out. You know, it's, it's a hindrance. But if we start to understand the gift that we actually receive from our uterus and from the ovaries that are now starting to slowly retire, if we have gratitude for them, that transition from the ovaries to the adrenals is going to be way more smooth because our adrenals, as many people probably know, are the ones that were giving us that stress hormone throughout our lives, but they have to take over now. So if we haven't been nurturing them, that is going to be a challenge, but now we are aware. So now we can start to nurture them. We can start to understand that how we respond to life and our stresses is going to have a direct impact on how we transition in perimenopause. I think that's such a beautiful reframing. And I think for many women, it's the acknowledgement that this reverse puberty, which is an oversimplification, mm -hmm. but the acknowledgement that we're transitioning into a different time in our lives, it's not less important. Mm -hmm. It's not less fun or less loving. It's just almost as if when we were making our way into puberty and we had to acknowledge there were changes in our bodies and our emotions and our sleep and our cravings, all of these different factors, we probably weren't even cognizant of yeah. are coming back to remind us, okay, we're, we're transitioning. And I think of perimenopause as a barometer of how well we're taking care of ourselves because the women that do the best in my clinical experience are the women that are doing the work. They mm -hmm. are sleeping. They are prioritizing the right type of exercise. They are removing inflammatory foods. They are connecting with their significant others or their children or their loved ones, really making an effort to take care of themselves. And, and I think in many ways we are conditioned to kind of minimize our own needs to take care of everyone else. And I was telling someone earlier this morning that, that I have a very defined morning because it allows me to get my kids on the bus when we don't have snow. And then I can invest in myself, whether it's exercise or reading. Like I set aside time every day to read for pleasure. And I set a time every day, whether to listen to an audible book or listen to a podcast for my own intellectual curiosity. Mm -hmm. But I've learned that I have to honor myself in a way that brings me joy. And so I laugh. I'm like, I love to learn. So other than when I was on vacation at Christmas, I'm always learning, but that's something that brings me joy. So acknowledging for each of us that might look a little bit differently, but the women who struggle the most, 
you know, oftentimes become that statistic, you know, the woman that is becoming increasingly more insulin resistant because she has waxing and waning estrogen towards the tail end of perimenopause. And that's when we see women really getting stuck. They fall into that metabolic inflexibility bucket. Yeah. And in many ways, they feel like they're stuck in the bucket. You know, that's the mm-hmm. kind of reframe. I always say, there's nothing that's not fixable. You know, mm-hmm. it, it just requires a bit of effort. And it's generally the lifestyle piece that a lot of people mm-hmm. struggle with because it's harder. It's much harder to change the way that you are living your lifestyle than it is to take a pill. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. the kind of traditional allopathic mindset is a pill solves all symptoms, but it's not addressing the root cause. Yeah. And so one of my favorite strategies for harnessing metabolic flexibility. And I know it's one that you embrace as well is talking to our patients about fasting. And mm-hmm. so I would love to get your perspective. And I know with your mm-hmm. background, there's probably a beautiful explanation behind how you talk about the way that fasting honors our bodies and supports mm-hmm. our hormones and allows us to be much more aligned on many, mm-hmm. many levels. Yeah. Fasting for me is um, reconnection. Right. So when, when we start to understand the type of fasting that works for us. So my background is also a little bit more in Ayurveda, just because of my heritage and knowing my constitution is more Vata. I've now discovered when I can fast and when I can't. I've also discovered throughout my cycle when I can fast and when I can't. And then I have my daily ritual, which is always with intermittent fasting. That's just part of life. And when we think back to our ancestry, and I know you know all this, and when we look at how the women before us would have eaten. So I look to my grandmother and I, you know, will look at a day in her life. when she was in India, she would wake up And everything there was prepared fresh because they didn't have refrigerators at that time. So everything was about that day. So she would get up, she would go milk the cows or the buffalo, and she would go grind the things. She would go make all this. And that would take her several hours. And then they would sit down and have their first meal. And then again, goes on to like the next. And they weren't eating in between because they were preparing for the feast that they were going to have together as a family. And now I know when we bring that into modern day life, it's not a reality. We have different jobs. We go to school. There's like all these other things. But what we do have that's similar is that genetic makeup that's been passed down. And also that human, the natural part of us that requires food for nourishment and not for comfort and distraction. So when we start to relate to food in a different way, we start to understand that fasting and those gaps that we have in between our meals or that gap that we have between our evening and late morning is really where all of our healing is happening. It's where the potential in our energy is actually awakening and being utilized and used the way it needs to for detoxification, for the healing, for activation of certain receptors so that the nervous system can actually activate itself into that parasympathetic state so we can sleep better. So for me personally, I intermittent fast almost every day. And that could be a 12 hour window, depending on where I'm in my cycle. I think that's where people get really confused. They think they can only eat for six hours. And really for me, when I started to adjust, I'm like, okay, after my cycle, up until ovulation, I have a lot of room to play with here. I can do a six hour window. I could even do a four hour window. I can do my 24 hour fast that I bring in once, sometimes twice a week. After ovulation, things change for me. I can now do maybe an eight to 10 hour window. The closer I get to my period, that may change to 10 to 12. So I kind of acknowledge that there's a rhythm to my life and that I don't have to be so rigid with this. And then I bring in block fasting. For me now, I've realized once a year is enough with my Vata nature and that's in the spring. So every spring I do a three-day partial fast and then a two to three-day water fast. And what that does for me, it's a very different intention. It's a spiritual intention. It's an energetic intention. It's an intention to heal and connect with a different source. And I had a immediate experience with that when I had my first block fast, I did a water fast for five days. And it was the first time I grieved all the losses that I had up to that point. I've lost a best friend, I've lost close cousins. And at that, that year, I lost my grandfather, who I was very close to. And we spend so much time in distraction with food, that the body doesn't even get an opportunity to unveil some of the stuff that we're carrying. So I find fasting as an opportunity 
to unveil all that we've been covering and they can bring that to the surface and it can actually heal it without us even having to do much. It just uses its own innate intelligence to do what it needs to do to kind of mulch. I like using the word mulch. It's mulching things like the autophagy, you know, we're mulching all the old cells and all the old habits and all the old things so that we can have this a new slate to work with. Well, what a beautiful way to end this delightful conversation that we've had today. Dr. Sonia, let listeners know how to connect with you on social media, mm-hmm. how to get, obviously we'll include all the links, but the easiest way to purchase your book, which I would really encourage women to do because it's unusual in that it really weaves in this kind of very gentle spiritual overtone. We didn't even get to talk about chakras, which is definitely one of the areas mm-hmm. I wanted to unpack, but we'll just have to have you back to speak more about that. How can listeners connect with you? How can they connect with you to purchase the book? Yeah, absolutely. So on Instagram, I'm at Dr. Sonia Jensen, and you can go to drsoniajensen.com. And for the book, you can go to womanunleashedbook.com. It is available on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Indigo, all the various places as well. Well, I'm so grateful for our time together today. And I definitely have to have you back because there were so many topics I didn't get to touch on. Oh, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity and all the work that you do. You're such an inspiration. So thank you for being you and bringing voice to so many things that uh, need to be heard by the world. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review. Subscribe and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.